Good morning, church. It's good to see you all again. Um, it's been a couple weeks. It's glad there's no snow this morning, and I'm happy to see your faces. Although I feel like there's more of you because we have council, so that's exciting too, huh? Um, just thinking about it being council today, I'm glad it worked out that our um, sermon this morning, even our, the songs we've been singing, are focused on you know our vision here at the church. Um, one of the ways I think you can sum up our vision, or if you want to title the message this morning is, our vision is simply this, on earth as it is in heaven. We'll be reading and, and preaching this morning from Revelation chapter five, and trying to remind us of this picture that God paints of us, not just of the world to come, but the world we're called to live for. Um, for our opening prayer, I'm going to be doing a, um, a little tweaking of a, a song we've been singing for a couple of weeks here. It's called Build My Life by House Fires, so I want to use this as our open prayer. Let's pray together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. Lord, help us to live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. Jesus, we live for you. Jesus, help us to live for you. Holy, there is no one like you, Jesus. There is none beside you. Open up our eyes in wonder and show us who you are. And fill us with your heart and lead us in love to those all around. Jesus, help us to build our lives upon your love. It is a firm foundation. Jesus, help us to put our trust in you, in you alone. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We'll be reading the entire chapter as we revisit the scene of what John saw in heaven to come. Starting at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. One of the great tragedies of the book of Revelation is that we're very good at making it something it's not. One of the great tragedies of Revelation is that we sometimes look at it too much as a code book. We know that Revelation, we attribute Revelation to be written by John. I find it a little bit funny that the guy who knew Jesus the best confuses us the most, but that's just me. John was Jesus' best friend. He was not only an apostle who was on the inner circle with Jesus. Again, he's the one that Jesus trusted to take care of his mother when he went up to heaven to prepare heaven for us. John was a church leader. So he's writing this letter to his people. Now, Revelation is considered apocalyptic literature. It has a lot of Old Testament prophecy and a lot of first century symbols. And it is. We're not first century people, so I get it. It's confusing. But imagine if all of us got together and wrote them a letter. Imagine if in this letter we talked about a White House and the Liberty Bell. We talked about the Stars and Stripes and the Bald Eagle. We talked about our Uncle Sam and Rushmore. Imagine how confused they would feel. Revelation is not a code book. It's simply scripture. Now, the setting in Revelation is also important. A lot of times we like to think of Revelation as, you know, the revelation that God gave to John. So it's his vision that he has. But if you read a little closer and you look through the chapters after chapter, you'll see that something's happening here. That John seems to be shifting and then there's alternating scenes between heaven and earth. And John's doing this intentionally. It's almost as if on earth as it is in heaven is reality or important or something. Interpretation and revelation. One of my um, favorite people in the world is actually John Yates, who went to church here for a while. And, and in his, um, in his uh, commentary on Revelation, he's like, there's two ways you can understand Revelation. The first one, think of it as an art gallery, you know? And in this art gallery, think about it how it's images over prediction, right? A lot of us go to this book and we think prediction. And he says, no, 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 it's about images. Now, how we interpret Revelation is fascinating. There's some people who will tell you, well, it's written for John's day and age. Then there's others who say, no, no, it's about human history and there's prophecies all throughout the book of Revelation. There's some people who will say, yeah, there's symbols, there's tons of symbols. They're about the new future, the near future, and the end time. Then there's some people who will say, you know, it's just a bunch of ideas. You know, John had a bunch of ideas that he wanted to put out in the world, and we got to solve them. Some people, I don't know, I always think of this, maybe it's the Anabaptists, right? They're trying to make peace with all these crazy ideas. It's like, what if it's a combination, right? What if it's a combination, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, right? Here's the best way, I think, to interpret Revelation. Think of it as this, scripture. It's scripture. It's written for them, but it's also written for us. If you think about everywhere else in the Bible, that's how we read it, isn't it? How come for Revelation we make it different? When we're reading in the Old Testament, we don't say, you know what, I know he's telling the story of David, but this is my story. We should just take David out and put Hank in there, right? We know that it's written for a certain people, but it's also written for us. And the way I know Revelation is written for us is because what is said to Christians for thousands of years now. What are some of the great lessons from Revelation that we need today? Here's a good one. Persevere. Persevere over darkness. In this world, you will have trouble, but I give you my peace. Persevere. In this world, there be darkness, shine your light, persevere. In this world, you will see brokenness. In this world, you will see trouble. In this world, you will see suffering. Persevere. Persevere. Why? Because we win in the end.
There's nothing better than knowing your team's going to win when you're watching the game. That's how we as Christians need to start living. Instead of being so downcast by everything that's wrong in this world, help us to have peace, Lord Jesus, in knowing that you're working to make it better. You're using us to make it better. You're calling us to simply persevere. Persevere, my sisters and brothers. Why? Because we win in the end. Revelation is also this powerful, powerful letter because you know what else it tells us? It tells us that we need to persevere. Why? Because we will overcome. We will overcome, and this is very, very important, because in our world, how we overcome is through violence. How we overcome is through selfishness. How we overcome is through might and right. But in Revelation, how we overcome is through love and sacrifice and laying down your life. Revelation reminds us that it's not about the power that you have. It's about the love that is in Christ Jesus. That the greatest way we overcome everything in this world is by laying down our lives. We're not called to be mighty. We're not called to be powerful. We're not called to take up our arms and fight for God. We're called to lay down our lives. To lay down our lives to lay down our lives for our sisters and brothers, that in Jesus' name, us following his example brings all of God's children home. Revelation is about Christ being the only one that's worthy of our worship. It's about pledging allegiance, not to God and country, but to Christ and his kingdom. It's about taking your citizenship, not in America, all these beautiful flags we see, but having your citizenship be in heaven. You know, I'm a millennial, and as a millennial, one of our prophets is a guy who I, I love sharing about him because he's got a great name. His name's Chance the Rapper, and he raps, right? And I've shared about how Chance might not even know he's an Anabaptist because he says, you know, don't believe in kings, believe in the kingdom. But I was thinking about it this week and reading through Revelation 5, and I realized the preface of that, the first two lines are actually a summary of the book of Revelation. I don't even think Chance knew this. If I ever write a commentary on Revelation, it's going in there. But I think Chance summarized Revelation by saying this, right? I don't, write, I don't write songs for free. I make them for freedom. Don't believe in kings. Believe in the kingdom. Chance is summarizing John's message in Revelation. John's not writing to trick you. John's not writing to confuse you. John's not writing because it's this great code book that he's hoping that maybe two of us can unlock. John's writing so that you can be free. John's writing so that you can know that this world has trouble, that this world has brokenness, that this world has darkness. But in Christ Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins, we can be free. We can be free from sin. We can be free from sin. We can be free from our own prisons. We can be free. John writes so that we can be free. But he also writes to remind us it's not about God and country. It's about Christ and kingdom. It's not about pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States. It's about pledging allegiance and your life to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone because America doesn't deserve your worship. Only Jesus deserves your worship. He said it to his people. Rome doesn't deserve your worship. Only Christ deserves your message. That'll preach. And that's how we better live. Because so many of us get trapped up in the world and everything the world says. And John reminds us, don't believe in kings. Believe in the kingdom. Revelation is also this beautiful picture that victory is in Christ alone. Can't say that any louder. We win not because of what we've done. 
We win not because of what we know. We win not because of what we see. We win not because of how smart we are. We win not because of of, of anything that we've done. We win by Christ alone. That's what he's calling the people to. That's what we need to be reminded for, that we win in this world. We overcome because our Christ has overcome. And how did he overcome? He overcome, he overcame by laying down his life. So when we say live in love like Jesus live in love, that's not just a really cool bumper sticker. And if you do that bumper sticker, you better tie it to the church because it's going to take off, I'm telling you. But we win by laying down our lives for our sisters and brothers. So if Jesus did it and we want to live in love like Jesus, that means all of us. Not just some of us. All of us are called to lay down our lives the way Jesus did because that's how we have the victory. And what I love most about Revelation is this beautiful picture it paints. And all over the art gallery, we see this word, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God is reminding us time and time again, because whether or not we're first Christians in ancient Rome or we're Christians here in America, God's reminding us it's not about you, it's about the world. It's not about your country, whether you call it Rome or you call it America. It's about every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's my plan. That's the culmination. That's what we're working for. And what I love most about this is that God isn't springing this up on us. This has been the plan from Genesis, and we see it culminate in Revelation. In Genesis, when he creates the world, he creates what? He creates us multiculturally. He's intentional about diversity. He's intentional about our beauty. He's intentional that we're all different, but in him we can be one. When he goes to Abraham, he doesn't say, Abraham, I love you. I will make you a father of this nation, of one nation. He says, no, Abraham, I will make you a father of what? Many nations. When he goes to David, he doesn't say, you know, your descendant, that the root that comes from your tree is going to be the savior of the Jewish people. No, no, no. He says, your descendant, Jesus, who's going to be my son, will come for what? The world. He will come for the world. And then when David's son Solomon builds the temple and Israel is in all its glory. God doesn't say to Israel, you know, this temple's beautiful. It'll be a house of prayer for Israel. No, no, no. What does he say? My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. And when the first church started, they got this. They got this and they were a multicultural kingdom. And that's what we're called to be. It's God's plan. When we see in Revelation, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, it's not because it starts in Revelation. It only gets completed in Revelation. Amen? But the best part about Revelation for me is what John does here in intentionally going between heaven and earth and heaven and earth. Because John wants us to know that on earth as it is in heaven is the reality. John wants us to know that heaven is not just something we have to dream for, it's something we have to work for. And what I mean by work for is not like anything we do on our own, but I just mean that sometimes we think of heaven as, it'll be so good when it gets there. It'll be so good when it comes. Heaven's already come down. 
His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls all of us to make on earth as it is in heaven the reality. So we don't just dream of the kingdom. We usher in the kingdom because God has left the spirit and we the church. And that's what he desires to make his kingdom come down. Heaven is not worth dreaming about if you're not working for it right now. Heaven is not worth thinking about if you're not getting ready for it right now. On earth as it is in heaven, it's the vision that God paints, but it's the work that God calls us to. Now, a long time ago, a couple months really, on my installation service when I became senior pastor, I, I want to talk about, uh, about our vision. But what I ended up really talking about is the mission, right? And the, 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 the two are different. To me, vision is painting the picture of what we're working towards. Mission is the work. And I wanted to assure we, the church, that we got work to do, we got work to keep doing. So when I talked about vision, I really preached on our work, and that's our mission. And I said our mission is, is the work that we do right now, not just because of the world to come, but because of the world that is, right? Not just because of heaven we're dreaming of, because God calls us to make on earth as it is in heaven. So that's why at this church, we worship Christ in Christ alone. That's why at this church, we pledge to serve God, but also to serve one another. That's why at this church, all of us in this room, all of us who hear the sound of my voice, all of us are called to be disciples who make disciples. That's the work of the church. And by that, I mean all of us together. The second thing that's fascinating about what we try to do here is we try to model, teach, and witness God's multicultural kingdom. And I can't think of anything that's more needed in our world besides Jesus and in our country, besides the fact that we belong to each other. This is something we've struggled with in America for, I don't know, four centuries now. We haven't ever truly believed that we're members of one another. We haven't truly believed that we're equal in Christ Jesus. We haven't truly believed that we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've allowed our politics to separate us. We've allowed our race to keep separating us. We've allowed our, our education, our, our money. We've allowed all the other ways the world separates us to separate us. But in Christ's multicultural kingdom, if it's on earth as it is in heaven, you need to be different than your America. So when we say we pledge our loyalty to Christ and Christ alone, that means even though your world works to separate you, you better be working to build them bridges. Even though your world tells you all the way you're different, you better be working to say, you have a home here, my sister. You have a home here, my brother. And if you're really good at looking at America and protecting America's interests, but you don't look like Christ and working for Christ's kingdom, John has a word for you. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. On earth as it is in heaven isn't just a dream. It's your work right now. At this church, we also believe in being holistic. And what we mean by that is we, we just learn from God in the Old Testament. We learn from Jesus in the New Testament. When people are hungry, we think it's great to tell them Jesus loves them, but we better feed them too. When people are struggling, we think it's great to say God loves them, but they better know God's love through our touch as well. When people are broken, we better not just complain about the brokenness. We better be working our own way to help heal that brokenness. When there's darkness, we better not be complaining about the darkness because our Bible tells us that we are the light of the world. And here's the thing we need to remember as Christians. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot that needed to be right in this world. But by my account, there's at least a billion of us. 
there's at least a billion of us. And as our good African brothers teach us, how do you eat an elephant? One little bite at a time. And if there's a billion of us, and if there's hundreds of us in this church, and we're all willing to eat that little bite at a time, a lot of our little bit becomes a lot bit. That's not great grammar, Ms. Bivens wouldn't like it, but it's true, right? If all of us are willing to do our part instead of complaining about the darkness, we can change the world by bringing Christ's kingdom down. All of us can do it together. And that brings us to the last part about being this church. What we're called to be is kingdom-releasing people. That's our world. That's our work. We need to look around this world and say, how can I shine my light here? Or who do I know in my body of Christ, in the believers, that would be really good to shine their light here because they're better equipped? We need to pledge to be kingdom-releasing people. It is never enough to complain about suffering, about darkness, about brokenness. You complain, that's great. Satan can complain too. What Satan can't do is what God asked you to do, and that's release his kingdom here. And you can do it through your love, and you can do it through your sacrifice, and you can do it if you truly follow Jesus, and you're willing to give up everything for your sisters and brothers. We need to be kingdom-releasing people. That's what we're called to do. That's the work. Worship, serve, make disciples who make disciples. Model, teach racial reconciliation and justice. Be holistic and serve the entire person. Be kingdom-releasing people. That's the work that we do in so many different ways. But the vision is a picture. And if we go back to John Yates in the art gallery, we'll realize that picture symbolizes the, the future. And what I love about it is, you know, in our day and age, we complain a lot about technology and all this stuff, but one of the things that's undoubtedly true is that picture used to paint a thousand words, right? But now picture paints everything. Think about it. You'll get it later. It's fine. So if our vision inspires the mission and this work that we do, what is this picture that we need to paint? Here at HBIC, we wrote it out in words, and we tried it. You know, I almost did this, and I didn't do it in the first service, but I almost said, I wonder how many people in this church right now can recite our vision word for word, right? Probably like three of us, and I'm going to have to read mine, so really two of us. But if you look on the bulletin, if you go on the website, it reads like this. Our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church, sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Those are good words. I like those words. I think it paints this beautiful picture, but I think it's harder for us to hold on to all different aspects of those words, right? So let's try a picture. Keith, can you put that picture up for me? This is a picture by um, a Lancaster artist by the name of Liz Hess. Um, it's called King of Kings, and, and I have to confess, my, my mother-in-law actually got a, a print of this and, and put it in her hallway, and I think it was over Christmas, and she was so excited to show me, and I was just like, She's going to listen to this message, so I got to get my apology ahead of time, you know. But I was just like, sure, I'll look at your picture, cool print, you know. Um, but I went into the hallway that she had it up there, and I remember being transfixed by this picture. I remember being blown away. Like, my breath was actually taken away the more I looked at this picture because I realized that when Liz has this painting here is Revelation chapter 5. What I realized is she's painting the lion and the lamb. She's painting the crowns of the people. She's painting every single nation and tribe and tongue that she could think of coming before the throne of God. And what I love most about this picture is not that every time I look at it, I see something new. Every time I look at it, I see someone new. 
and it's a beautiful reminder that this picture we're trying to paint by the vision of this church aligns with the vision of God's kingdom, but it aligns with this call that we're all called to do, and that's make space at the table for our sisters and brothers. That's called to not just be diverse because it's something new and a fad. I love when people tell me that, like, this diversity thing, it's new. I was like, yes, it starts in Genesis. <laughs> Very new. But what I love about this picture, and actually I'm going to, it's funny, I got to give her a shout out, but Grandma Deanna at the store who helped me mat it, I never talked more about matting pictures in my life, but if you need any tips, I got you, right? Um, and it's funny because I, I also didn't realize how much it was going to cost me, but I did some, uh, a little cost-benefit analysis, and I was like, well, if I have it in my office for about 30 years, it's actually quite affordable, you know? Like, if you just divide it by 30, it's not that bad, you know? But if you ever come to my office, we'll probably talk about this picture, right? But what I love about this picture is it takes me back to Revelation 5. It takes me away from the words on our bulletin, the words on our website, and I like having this picture in mind. Because when I think of this picture, I'm reminded back to that scene that John painted. Remember the scene that we read earlier about the scroll? Now, a lot of people debate what the scroll is, but John 8 said it, so I believe it. The scroll is God's complete plan to redeem the world. And I actually read a couple other commentators who said, actually, that makes the most sense. Because it can't be the Lamb's book of life because there's people already there who are in the book of life. It's got to be God's complete redemption of the world. And what I love about that is, again, it calls us to a full gospel. We need to stop teaching a gospel that's only about the cross. The gospel is the entire story, God's entire redemption plan. It starts with the God of this universe coming to earth. That's gospel. It starts with Jesus, the God of this universe, walking the earth to show you how to live in a way to please God. That's gospel. It comes with Jesus going to the cross, dying on the cross for your sins, being the only one who could save you. That's gospel. But it also includes Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day and resurrected. That's gospel. But it also includes Jesus now sitting at the right hand of God as your intercessor, as the one who's praying and advocating on your behalf. We need to get better as Christians to teach a full gospel. Because if you only tell the world about the cross, it's beautiful and it might get some. But if you want to get all, tell the full story. People might not know what they need salvation from, but if you tell the full story, you're preaching gospel like the first Christians did. The scroll has God's complete plan, and the angel looks at it, and he says, who is worthy? And he looks in heaven, he looks on earth, he looks under the sea, looks everywhere, and he realizes no one is worthy. It's so bad that John, who's watching this vision and this scene unfold, he starts weeping and weeping bitterly. I almost picture like the ugly crying face, right? He's weeping bitterly. But then the elder walks up to him and says, no, 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 John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, he's the one who's worthy to open the scrolls. And that terminology is very, very impressive for this simple reason, right? David was Israel's greatest king. David conquered through power, through might, through violence. John reminds us that his descendant is going to come to conquer, not just to set up an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom. And he's going to do it not by power, not by might, not by violence, not by guns, not by bombs. He's going to do it by dying on the cross for your sins. 
That's the message here, that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the descendant of David. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who becomes like a lamb and dies on the cross for our sins. Jesus, the slain lamb, now sits at the throne. And it's a resurrected lamb because we can tell from John's words here that we can see the marks of his hurt. We can see the marks of his suffering. We can see the marks of his death. But praise God, we as Christians can also always see the marks of his resurrection. And I'm seeing it right now, looking at this room and seeing all the stories, all the miracles God's done. We bear the marks of his resurrection as well. I think that's important to know. A lot of us are, are amazed that Jesus bears the marks of his suffering, that Jesus will one day bear the marks of his death. But in your stories, in God working in you, in God living in you, you also bear the marks of resurrection. Amen? Amen. We're in this together. Amen? And this lamb who was slain, who opens the scroll, leads to this beautiful scene of praise where the angels bow down, the people bow down, the <coughs> prayers of the saints go up, the harps come out and they're dancing. And I love this picture of the harps because it just reminds me that not only does everyone belong, right? But however you worship, God makes a place for you. I think that's a beautiful thing about our God. And what I also love about this is the two symbols that dominates this portion of the text talks about the creatures, right? And it's amazing to me that in this scene, the only thing she's missing is, I don't know, all of the cosmos. It's every nation, it's every tribe, it's every tongue, but it's also every creature. It's also everyone who's ever believed in Jesus and is now there in heaven. It's all of the cosmos coming to worship him. And the elders represent those saints of heaven who've come before what the writer of Hebrews calls the great cloud of witnesses. How amazing that everyone who's ever believed will be at the throne of Christ. How amazing is it that this entire world he created will bow down at the throne and worship the king. If this doesn't get you excited about heaven, I got nothing for you. I really do. Because this is going to be not just the culmination of all scripture, but the culmination of all creation. When all is made right and we can all worship God, we can all worship God, we can all worship God with the cosmos. Jesus' blood purchases all of us. It purchases every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. But what I love is John slips in this little line that his first century Jews would have loved. And we'll be studying David in the next couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll see there's this tension that emerges because we as people, we like power through violence. We like borders. We like, you know, putting around like this is our kingdom. This is our little earthly thing. But God seems to have a bigger plan than all of that. And when God chose his people, you know what he called them? He says, I will make you a kingdom of priests. I think we as Christians do a good job on Revelation because we say we can't wait to rule with God, right? And that's beautiful. That's cool. Good luck, right? But you sound like some of the disciples, don't you, when you say that, right? Remember the, the two who are just like, hey, when you come back, it's going to be kind of cool, you know, like you got everybody here. But can we sit to like your right and your left? Can we be like right up there with you? That's what we sound like when you focus on the reigning with God part. Because what God wants you to be is a kingdom of priests, right? The priests had two things, access to God and access to the people. So that means that when John reminds us that in Revelation, and even right now, if on earth as in heaven is a reality and it's supposed to be happening now, John reminds us that every single one of us are called to be priests. So the call here then becomes, who is God giving me access to in my life? 
that I can show access to God? Who's in my family? Who's in the workplace? Who do I have lunch with once a month? Who have I been praying for for 20 years? Who has God given me access to? So it's not about reigning with God in power. That's going to be amazing. It's about right now saying, who has God put in my life that I can be a priest for? Who has he given me access to that I can pour his love into? We're called to be a kingdom of priests. And then the scene ends with, again, all of creation, all that has ever been, all of the cosmos affirming the victory and redemption of Christ. And I love that Revelation celebrates victory again. And we need to hear this because our world will keep telling us that we conquer through power and might and violence. And Jesus will always remind us that we lay down our lives. We sacrifice. We do it through the love that God's placed in us, but in that sacrifice is how we overcome the world. Amen? See, our vision here at this church, I think, calls us to the kingdom, but it has to be more than words. I love our words, right? Our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. I love our words. We, we make good words here, but the vision has to be more than words. It also has to be more than Liz has pictures. I love this picture. I'll probably love this picture the rest of my life. I think the only thing that's going to top this picture is when I get to heaven and it's like better, right? Because it's alive and in person, right? I love this picture. But our vision has to be more than Liz has pictures. Our vision also has to be more than the scene that is repainted here in Revelation that we're hoping for. Our vision has to be this, on earth as it is in heaven. I have a really good friend who went to church here for years before he went to be a BIC pastor um, in the York area. I remember, it was almost like 10 years ago now, we were in seminary. I remember we were sitting there, and he was waxing poetic, and that's what you do in seminary. People just talk too much, and I'm trying to eat my food, right? At least that's how I went to seminary. Um, I put all my, all my effort in my, in my papers. It was great. Don't worry. I, show you my, I can show you my transcript if you don't believe me. Um, but people talked a lot at seminary, right? I remember he was waxing poetic one day, and he'll probably listen to this, so it's fine. I'm paraphrasing. Um, he was waxing poetic, and then I remember he said something, and I was like, wait, wait, slow down. What did you just say? And I remember him just basically saying, what if Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, was serious about on earth as it is in heaven? And I'm not lying to you. That changed my entire life. It made the Lord's Prayer a work that I need to get, get on board with, right? Because it made heaven not just something I dream of that's coming, but if this vision of Jesus is what we're supposed to be working for today, that should change all of us, right? It should make all of us then asking the question, what do we need to do to make room at the table? What do we need to give up to bring other people in? How do we join in Christ's work in this world? It changes everything because if you truly believe on earth as it is in heaven, you need to be working for it today. So when we revisit our vision, and I want to revisit it asking these four questions based on the four big words here. We say we're a thriving church. For us, that means you're alive in Christ. And to be alive in Christ means that you've given your life to Christ. You've asked him to forgive you of your sins. You've said Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord of my life. You said, Jesus, I give it all to you. And some of us have made that decision. And if you haven't made that decision, please come. We'd love to talk to you and share about the love of Christ. But for all of us who've made that decision, the next question becomes for thriving is, are you living in Christ? Because it's easy to love Christ and live in the flesh. It doesn't seem like it should be easy, but we do it very well. 
right? Are you living for Christ? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is your life defined by Jesus or defined by you? Is your life defined by what you say is best or what God says is best? Are you defined by living fully for Christ? And then here's my favorite part about this thriving part is, are you bringing life where you are? This life in Christ isn't just for you to hold on to it and treasure. It's for you to share. So in your workplace, in your families, in your relationships, in your everyday scenes, how are you bringing life so that your world that you're being a priest to, that you have access to, can be thriving? How are you bringing life into this world? How are you spreading the kingdom into your world? We talk about being a diverse church. And I love that Christian history changes every three to 400 years. One of my favorite people in the world is a guy by the name of Laman Sane, and he's one of two people I know who read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, put it down, like, I believe in Jesus, right? And to me, that's a miracle, because I would have got lost in Leviticus, right? But he says that one of the things he loves about Christianity is it doesn't have a center. God seems to every couple of centuries or so shift the center of Christianity to remind us that he's about the world. Aren't you glad this morning that Christianity didn't just stay in ancient Rome? Aren't you glad this morning it didn't just stay in Europe? Aren't you glad this morning that to be a Christian means that you, there's a billion of us who are spread from Africa to Asia to South America to North America. Aren't you glad that Christianity shifts so that God is always thinking of new ways to bring more children home? God so loved the world. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. So must we. And we talk about being an urban church. And I think what we need to ask always at every given time is, are we here or are we here here, right? And what I mean by that is we do this too well with people who we love, right? It's very easy to be physically here, but your person will tell you, you know, whether your partner, your spouse, or your friend will be like, I feel you're like you're not present in this conversation, right? Like you're physically there, but you're not there. I think that's how we need to look at being in Harrisburg, right? Are we here here? Are we present and in this conversation? Are we present in this city? Not just because of what we can give, but because of who God calls us to be. Because of the witness we're called to be. And the last one is simply this, right? We're a church who believe in sharing God's love locally and globally. And one of the things I love about technology is, yes, to whom much is given, much is expected. So that means that all of us as Christians are called to serve God locally, but also globally. Like, if you know about Christians who are suffering in parts of the world, you can pray for them. If you know about missionaries who are serving other parts of the world, you can support them. All of us are called to serve locally and globally. So it's not just about the blessings and the gifts that God's given you. It's about how are you making the kingdom better. So the question becomes, how are you sharing God's love locally? But it also must become, if we're going to really talk about Revelation and the entire earth, how are you sharing God's love globally? Revelation is this picture of a table that we come to because of the work of Jesus. And I can't think of anything more beautiful that celebrates that work of Jesus than communion. I'd like to invite the ushers to get ready, the deacons to get ready as they go back. And whenever you're ready, you can come up front. In this table of communion, we are reminded of God who made a way for us. Reminded of Jesus who freely and willingly died on the cross of our sins so that we can all come home again. So I'd like to invite up the deacons as we go now to the communion table. And as we go to the communion table, may you be reminded that God calls us not just to the world, not just to our world, but to each other.